Good evening to you. Take your Bibles, go with me to the Psalms. Psalm 16. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Many of you in Sunday school have been studying the Psalms, and I thought it would be appropriate if we would take a look at a Psalm of David tonight. We're going to mainly just look at one verse tonight. Psalm 16, verse 11. You probably see it on the screen or you can see it in your Bibles. Let me read us uh, for it in verse 11. David says, speaking to God, you will make known to me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, he says, there are pleasures forever. This Hebrew hymnal that we call the Psalms today originally were the prayers and the praises of the Hebrew people. We see them collected for us in the Psalms today. But as one writer mentioned, the Psalms cover a whole range of human emotion. It goes from the highs to lows of our experience. Things like sin and shame, repentance, victory, life and joy, they're all for us here in the Psalms. And I find it very interesting that David is the main writer of the Psalms. David was a man in Scripture that he was after God's heart. We see him all the time depending upon God, but his life was filled with victory and triumph and many times even tragedy. And he had to learn to always go to God no matter the circumstances. But one writer also mentioned that all of those topics of sin and shame and sorrow, joy, all the things that we see in the Psalms, they're timeless and they're universal. They affect all of us. They affect us all throughout the ages, but they're the very material of what he called prayer, the very material of which prayer is made. So let's consider what David's prayer is tonight as he depends upon God. And tonight we look specifically in Psalm 16. It's just one entry, one psalm in what we call book one of the psalms. If you had time, you could take your Bible, go through the psalms, and you would see that there's five different divisions, book one, book two, all the way to book five. And book one starts with Psalm number one, and it ends with Psalm number 41. The reason that's important is that historically, Bible scholars tell us that five divisions of the Psalms in the Bible are very similar to the first five books of the Bible. That as the the biblical writers collected the Psalms throughout the years, they organized it in such a way that it would reflect the books of Moses at the beginning of the Bible. So if you follow that pattern, David organizes the first section of these praises and prayers in such a way that it should picture Genesis. Moses, at the very beginning of Scripture, he tells us that there was this eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful God. And just out of his creativity and out of his love, he decided to create life. And he was the creator of life, the sustainer of life. He said that his creation was good, and he ended his last day of creation with his greatest creation, and that was humankind itself. Well, in book one, we see throughout many of those first 40 or so psalms, the same themes of life. That God is, number one, the giver of life, but he's also the sustainer of life. Those types of themes and focuses are what we see right here in Psalm 16. Where in verses 1 and 2 and all the way to verse 11, David is praising God as the author of his life, the giver of his life, but one that is going to sustain him. So tonight we get to see David clinging to God. He is not just bowing before God as some creator. He is latching onto him as his source of life. And what we're going to see is that as David casts himself on God's grace, as he reflects on who God is, we get to see this desperation in his heart. And out of that desperation, he lists the different benefits that God offers to all of us when we have that same type of dependence. 
We're mainly just going to look at one verse tonight. Last time I was with you, uh, we did something interesting. We covered a whole book of the Bible. We covered ten chapters. It wasn't my goal, but the day after, I got a message from our own brother Bobby. And he said, hey, bud, I just put your sermon on the church website. I want you to know you just beat my record for longest sermon. So as of last summer, it's official. I'm your longest-winded preacher with just one sermon. So in the spirit of making it up to you tonight, how about we just mainly look at one verse. Just one verse in Psalm 16, verse 11. David says once again, you will make known to me this path of life. In your presence, which we talked about this morning, is fullness of joy. In your right hand, David says, there are pleasures forever. I want you to quickly look, before we get to our points tonight, look with me in verses 1 and 2. These set the foundation for David's heart. In verses 1 and 2, we see this desperation. David says, O God, preserve me. I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you're my Lord. I have no good besides you. These things are going to help us as we think about David's first statement in verse 11 that centers on life itself. If you have a bulletin tonight, I put an insert in there for you for this service. But if you just want to follow along or look at the screen, I want you to note number one tonight. When it comes to getting life, receiving true biblical life, life that we're going to describe tonight is life to the fullest. Receiving life comes by solely and entirely depending on the Lord and on the Lord's work. Receiving life the way God intended comes in relationship and dependence to him. David begins verse 11 by simply saying that God is leading him in what he calls this path of life. This path of life is an interesting idea. We see it in the Psalms and especially in the Proverbs. In Psalm 139, probably a familiar psalm to many of you, David describes how God has tender, compassionate care over his life. And as he gets towards the end of the Psalms, after he's been rejoicing about God's presence with him, after he's been thinking about God's care, after he's been trying to wrap his mind around how unfathomable God is, in verse 23 of Psalm 139, David asks that God would remove the sin in his heart And then in verse 24, he says, God, guide me, lead me in what he calls this everlasting way. So David gives us this first idea of what I want to call tonight the paths of two things, death and the path of life. The paths of death and life. David first mentions it here in the Psalms, but in the book of Proverbs, we see David's son Solomon, the main speaker in the Proverbs. We see him emulating his father's teaching. Solomon continues the discussion of death and life in his kingdom in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, Solomon makes it very clear that he wanted to teach the young people, especially his son, who was going to be a future ruler, he wanted him to have wisdom for what he called daily living. And throughout the Psalms, in the first part of it, Solomon gives four different references to, similar to David, this path of life. And I want to just give you some references to all four of them. The first two are related to what Solomon calls the seductress. He, in the book of Proverbs, symbolizes this this lady that seduces young men, and this lady represents this passion of the world, the passion of the world that so easily entangles us. And in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 19, the first reference that Solomon gives is this. No one who goes to her, the seductress, will not reach the path of life. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 6, 
This seductress, this lady that represents the world, he says, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, but she does not know it. I want you to think about those words, and let's flip it around later in the Proverbs. Now Proverbs starts focusing on what life is. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17, instead of leading to death, Solomon says this, He who is on the path of life heeds godly instruction. And in Proverbs 15, 24, the path of life, Solomon says, leads upward to God rather than leading downward to death. So even in David and Solomon, this father and son tag team, this duo, we see the Bible giving us a really strong principle right at the beginning here tonight. And the principle goes like this. The life that so many people in this world want to chase, the life that they are attracted to, and the life that they seek out for themselves most of the time is no life at all. Because the life that so many want to chase is a life that takes God who's the author of life, and it trades him for sin, which is the destroyer of life. The paths of sin and grace come up next, the prices of sin and grace. Just before we move on, think about what Jesus said. Probably a familiar passage to you, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus himself describes death and life. He says, the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many pursue it, many find it, many enter through it. But in verse 14 he says, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few find it. The paths of death and life. I want you to think secondly about sin and grace, the price of sin and grace. In verse 11 David says, you God, you make known to me the path of life. David is dependent on God. It's as if David is saying, God, unless you make known to me what life is, I can't get it. Left to myself, I don't have any hope. David understands that without God showing him life, he and all of humanity would be doomed to death apart from him. David makes it very clear that that good God in verse 2, where he says, you're my Lord, I have no good besides you, you're my God. That God that he describes in verse 2 is the one that is giving him life. And all David has to do is just surrender himself to this God, to surrender his life to him. And all God has and requires is simple faith, simple faith that leads to righteousness. David tells us here that the people that know God's grace, that know God's favor that we'll see throughout the psalm tonight, the people that know that, the people that receive God's life, it should produce within them a lifestyle of dependence upon God. Very similar to what David says here in verses 1 and 2. I take refuge in you. You are my good. I have no good besides you. If David's sin, if the price of his sin leaves him bankrupt and leaves him hopeless, then all the more reason why he gives praise to God who offers grace and it's free. If David's sin leaves him bankrupt, all the more reason to trust in a God that offers grace freely to all that respond to him. Let's finish this point with praises. David makes it clear in verse 11 that he gives praise to God because he makes it known to him. God reveals what life is here in verse 11. He gives praise for what I'm going to call tonight knowledge and praise also for direction. David places all of his confidence in the fact that God is going to show him life, that God is going to continue to make known to him life. The Hebrew word that David uses for make known or show, what it literally means is practical experience. 
David is not just saying, God, you're going to teach me about some theoretical thing that I can't hold on to. David says, no, you lead me into day-to-day life, practical living the way that you want. If you look in verse 7 of the same psalm, Psalm 16, verse 7, David says, God, I bless you because you have counseled me, and through my mind you instruct me in the night. David can trust God with his counsel and that he can live and experience life the way God intended day by day. David prizes this. David takes a hold of this. He is utterly dependent on God for receiving life. You may be familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards. He's remembered in history as a a vital part of what's called the Great Awakening that shapes so much of our country's uh, Christian foundation and heritage. And he's also, even two, three hundred years later, known as America's greatest theologian in our country. And he described one time in a sermon how God gets glory when we depend upon him. And the way that he describes it, very similar to David, is he describes God as being our ultimate good. Let me just read you some comments that he mentioned all those years ago. He says the redeemed, all of those God's people, all that belong to him, the redeemed have all their good, he says, from God. God is the great author of it, and he is the first cause of it. And not just the first cause, he's the only cause. It is of God that we have our Savior. It is of God that Jesus becomes ours. It is of God that we receive all the benefits that Jesus purchased. It's of God that we receive all excellency and wisdom and holiness. And it's even of God that we have the scriptures, for they are the very words of God. So David is teaching us here that as God wants to make known to us what life is, God is teaching us that real life is life that obeys and depends upon him. If we get to experience that, then all the more reason, like we said this morning, to give him praise, to be grateful and give him worship in return. Praise be to him, Paul says, that freely gives us all things in Jesus Christ. As God shows us love and as God offers us real life, what he's really doing is he's offering himself. And the way that we receive it is simply, as David says, by depending and putting all of our trust on him. I like the way the New, Trevi- uh, New Living Translation rather puts this, verse 11. New Living Translation says, You make known to me the way of life, and it grants me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. So David makes it clear that God giving us life is the first step into experiencing what life truly is all about. We get life, we receive life, we understand what real life is when we depend upon God solely and entirely. I want you to move on with me to number two tonight. David starts discussing something that should make us excited. In the center part of verse 11, David starts mentioning that there is joy in God's presence. So number two tonight In order for us to experience joy in our living, this life that God gives us, this life of obedience, in order to experience joy, it comes when we actively and without shame pursue God himself. Joy comes by actively and unashamedly pursuing the Lord himself. Just last year of June 2016, there was a global survey that had about 2 million people involved in it all across the world. And the survey was conducted by a healthcare company known by the name of Abbott. And they actually claim that they, at different times, operate in more than 150 countries around the world. They surveyed just about 2 million people over the course of a long time from the United States, Mexico, Brazil, Germany, India, and China. 
And in the survey, they asked the participants to do two things. The first thing they asked was to give uh, a personal opinion about what it takes to have a fulfilled life. What's the number one thing a person can pursue that they can be satisfied in life? That was the first part of the survey. Then the second part of the survey was for each person to individually state how fulfilled are you in your living. If you were to give a percent between zero and 100%, zero being you're not fulfilled at all, 100 that you are completely fulfilled and satisfied in life, what personal percentage would you give? And the article that the company put together as of last year gave some interesting results. Let me just summarize them for you. According to this survey, once again, 2 million people all across the world, on average, there were three answers that came to the very top. What are the number three things that the world says are the keys to satisfaction? The number one answer was family. 32% of the answers was that our families lead us to fulfillment in life. The second highest answer was success, only 12%. Success leads to fulfilled life. And the last answer that came up to the top was giving, that giving to others, giving to the needy leads to satisfaction, and that was only 8% of the answers. What I found really interesting was that on average throughout the world, people gave 68% as the average answer for how fulfilled they are in their living. So as a teacher, 68% means a D plus, not doing very well. 68% on average, people around the world would say, I'm about this satisfied in life. What's even more interesting is that America was three percentage points lower than the average. On average, out of that survey, people in America only said they were about 65% satisfied with life. Another interesting fact was that China was number one with personal fulfillment, and on average they rated themselves just under 80%. It's kind of interesting. The most important part of that survey, though, was the very beginning that they mentioned. In the article, they mentioned that life fulfillment is a highly personal process. That life fulfillment depends on who you ask, and there's ultimately, as they indicate, no guarantee of fulfillment and joy in living. So I want to, if you will, just consider with me a question that we need to ask tonight. What's the question that we've got to ask tonight? It goes something like this. Is life fulfillment, is satisfaction that we all chase, is it subjective? Is it something that can change based on opinion? Or is it objective? Is it rooted in something that is real, something that is based on facts? Well, if you look in Psalm 1611, David makes it very clear that joy in life comes in God, in God's presence. It's not a matter of changing opinions across the ages. It is something that is rooted deeply in who God is and in how we experience him. So I want you to consider with me the answer that can be found here in verse 11. David says, God, in your presence, that we talked about this morning, in your presence, he says, is fullness of joy. Fullness is an interesting word. Uh, In Hebrew, it's only used twice in the Old Testament. Uh, For many of you that studied the the Psalm 78 in Sunday school, this might be familiar to you because the word fullness, the first time it's used is in Exodus chapter 16. And if you studied Psalm 78 this morning, you might have uh, talked about how the Israelites in the wilderness, they grumbled all the time against Moses and Aaron, the leaders. And in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3, the Israelites became so depressed. 
They said, Moses, it would have been better if you left us in Egypt. At least there we were satisfied with our food. But no, you've led us to this wilderness, and now we're going to starve. How dare you rescue us in Exodus chapter 16. And when you read that chapter, you're no doubt familiar with it. And it's interesting to remember how did God respond to their grumbling. Well, God first provided them quail. It was actually a time of judgment. Many people got sick. But immediately after that, God instituted something that they would have day by day. And the Israelites called it manna. Every day they would get to go out. And as the dew would settle, they would see this flaky substance. And they would turn it into wafers. And that would sustain them for all of their wilderness wanderings. But in Exodus chapter 16, verse 12, God made it very clear. He said, every time that you go, except for that Sabbath day... Every time you go and every morning to gather that manna, he says you need to remember that I am the Lord, your God. I am the sustainer of your life. Fullness in Exodus was linked to God. Well, now David uses it in Psalm 16, verse 11. And it doesn't just mean satisfaction of appetite. Here in verse 11, David says that fullness really means abundance. So literally, David says here that if you want gladness, if you want joy in life, if you want a cheerfulness that is in abundance, David says you do it by seeking God himself. What's special about joy is that it goes beyond circumstances. It wasn't planned by me, but this week that was the entire topic of conversation that the youth studied this Wednesday. What is it like to have joy that can face persecution. Throughout this summer, the youth have been studying about the persecuted church. How is it that our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are going to be our eternal friends one day, how is it that they have the joy or the courage to, to face life day by day? How can they go through those struggles that we can only imagine and can't even speak about? How is it that they can live day by day and even forgive the people that oppress them? Well, David says here it's because of joy. They have joy by being in the presence of God. So the question is, just like we asked this morning, what does it mean to be in God's presence? We mentioned this morning that basic theology says that God is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere present in his full being at all times. So what does it mean, as David says, to have fullness of joy in God's presence? As an illustration of this, uh, a lot of you that have got to know me know I'm a teacher, and I teach 5th and 6th graders for a living, so they range anywhere from 10 to 13-year-olds. And uh, there's always a lot of challenges that come with that age, and the number one challenge is how do you keep those 10 to 13-year-olds' attention? And as a teacher, one thing that you learn is that if you go in a classroom and your primary goal is to keep them entertained for as long as you can and try to get their attention as long as possible... Eventually, at the end of the day, you're going to be frustrated and disappointed. So keeping their attention for as long as possible is not the secret. The real secret is how can you get their attention back once they lose it? And every teacher that teaches for a long enough time creates what I call a custom toolbox. Different uh, tricks and tips that they have in their own classrooms of how to re-establish attention based on their students. So for someone like me, uh, I walk around when I teach. I use technology all the time goof around, we play games. I've even been known in a suit to run and jump on top of their desks and walk across their desk as I teach a lesson. Whatever I have to do to regain their attention. Now, one thing I tell my kids all the time in the classroom is this. I tell them, 
You don't have to look at me in order to listen. I know that. Uh, those of you that are parents of teenagers, you probably experience that daily. Every time you try to say something, the heads are down. It all starts in fifth and sixth grade. But I tell them all the time, you don't have to look at me in order to listen. However, learning comes by face-to-face interaction. Face-to-face interaction. If I can get face-to-face interaction, that is oftentimes the greatest success. Why do I mention that? And when verse 11, when David says, in your presence there's fullness of joy, that phrase, in your presence, literally means the face of God. In the biblical writer's times, the human face represented the whole person. It represented who they were. Uh, Even today, the human face is the most identifiable part of a person's body. But when the Bible would use that phrase, the face of a person or the face of God, it was a figurative way of talking about that God's presence. Even in the cultures that surround David, even in the pagan cultures that worshipped other gods, they used this idea of God's face as a symbol for his glory. Interesting to note, by the way, All the times throughout the scriptures, what happened every time people requested to see God's face? He says, you cannot handle it. You would perish due to my might if you ever saw my face. But it's interesting that David says, when we have face-to-face interaction with God, it leads us to experiencing true joy. Joy that this life cannot offer. Joy that goes beyond circumstances because it's rooted in God. So what does he mean by seeking the face of God? John Calvin put it this way. I love how he wrote it. When God makes peace with us, he says that God looks on us with the favor of a father. A fatherly favor, and that fatherly favor, he says, is the cause of our joy. But that joy does not bring us cheer unless we behold God's favor shining down on us. It takes face-to-face interaction. God shows his favor. He shows his love and compassion and grace. But it is our job to behold his grace that is shining down on us. David speaks of joy in God's presence. But the only way David can do so is David is anticipating one day where God is going to send a Savior. Where ultimately one day sin is going to be dealt with. Where one day the sacrifice and payment for sin is going to be conquered so that we can enjoy the presence of God. We know that that final payment came in Jesus Christ. David, as well as all of those Old Testament believers, they were saved, as preachers say, on credit. They were saved on a future account, and Jesus made and settled the account, made the payment for sin on the cross. It's interesting that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul uses the same idea to describe the face of God, God's glory, in connection to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 summarizes how God used to, in the old days, he had to hide his face. He had to hide his glory. There had to be a veil between God and man. But in verse 6 he says, Now the same God has shown in our hearts. He's given us the light of the knowledge of his glory that comes in the face of Jesus Christ. So for us... If we want guaranteed joy in life, David says, you seek who God is. Marvel at how awesome he is. Warm yourselves by the fire of his love. Swim around in the currents of his grace. This, David says, gives us guaranteed joy that goes beyond anything that this world has to offer. This world can only give us temporary cheer. 
The writer of Hebrews summarizes this for us, and he says that we can come to God with confidence. We can draw near to him with confidence because we have a high priest. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16 says, we can go at any time to God's throne and get mercy and grace in any time of need. So guaranteed living, real life and real joy comes in the presence of God. I want to end quickly tonight by looking at the last phrase in verse 11. David's mentioned life, he's mentioned joy. Let's close tonight with thinking about the word peace. Number three tonight, in order to know peace, peace that changes the way we live and changes the way that we even get ready for death, as David's going to describe, knowing peace comes when we compare and when we live courageously by remembering God's victory. Knowing peace comes by comparatively and courageously remembering God's victory. David says here in verse 11, the last part, God, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. It's going to be sort of a negative statement to those of you that are left-handed, but in the Bible days, left-handedness was a symbol of weakness. In the biblical times, the right hand was always a symbol of God's power. The right side or the right hand of a person was always a figurative way of talking about that person's favor, that person's love, and that person's strength. A few examples of this, if you were to look sometime at Psalm 18, verse 35, David says that God's right hand would support him in battle. Or in Psalm 139, verse 10, that God's right hand would give him guidance. If you even just think about a king, who would sit beside or stand beside the king? It would be the person in the highest position. And especially in the kingdom days, a king's bride would have the honor of standing beside her spouse, her king, in a special position. David, all throughout this psalm, has been telling us that God is the author of life. He's the giver of life. He's the authority on life. He's the sustainer of life. But there's a natural struggle that if we were honest tonight, there's a struggle that all of us can go through and probably at some point in time we will all go through. And that struggle is how we reconcile in our minds this powerful God and what I'm going to call tonight the problem of evil. The problem of evil. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the fact that we have a world with evil in it, that has threatened, many scholars say, people believing in a God more than anything else. The fact that we say there's a sovereign God, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's good, but yet there's evil in the world that is a natural struggle for all of us to have to experience. How can we say that God is good if he allows us to go through difficult things? That's a natural question that we have to ask. So writers say that we're always living in conflict oftentimes between God's power, God's goodness, but the fact that there's evil everywhere we turn in this world. We want to make this even more of an issue. Let's throw death in the mix. Think about the issue of death itself. When we look at this world... David put it best in Psalm 103. He says, when it comes to man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, he might shoot up and flourish. But when the wind passes over, the place acknowledges him no more. That's a summary of our life at times. And David is still saying here that in God's right hand, God's power, he says there's pleasures forever. How in the world can David say that our God is so powerful that he gives us pleasure when we go through evil. Is he just ignorant? Did David just somehow miss out on troubles in his life? No. Or is David delusional? Does he simply say, ah, don't worry about all that junk? 
You know, God's good. That's all I need to remember. Well, you have to answer no to that as well. The question is, what gave David confidence to say that God gives pleasures forever due to how powerful he is? And so to answer that, let's consider lastly tonight this value of eternity. David gets our hearts ready for eternity at the end of verse 11 where he says, In your right hand there are pleasures that last forever. Pleasures that last forever. Go with me quickly to verse 8. How is it that David could look at his God and say, God, you are so powerful. You're powerful enough to give me life, powerful enough to give me joy that gives me joy across all circumstances. And not only that, but you offer me forever pleasures. In verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord continually before me. He is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh will dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or which in the Old Testament is the land of the dead or the grave. You will not allow your Holy One, he says, to undergo decay. It's in view that David knew that he was a man, and eventually he was going to die. It's in view of that that David latches on to who God is. David, who's mortal, latches on to the immortal God. David understands his life, but David also has confidence that there's going to come a day where God gets the final say over death. And David has supreme confidence in this. In verse 9 he says, My flesh, my body, will dwell securely because it's in the hands of God. David is looking forward, even here in the Old Testament, to the day in which God is going to have victory over death, where he's going to raise the people that belong to him, when he's going to bring them to himself so that they can worship and enjoy him forever. Those forever pleasures are things that this world can offer, and those forever pleasures are what we get to experience with God in eternity. It's important to note, as one writer said, that verse 10 here in Psalm 16 is the message of Peter and Paul in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 13, Peter and Paul use this verse of David to point us to Jesus. And especially Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Peter says, David, when he talked about death, you can visit his tomb today. But when you go to visit Jesus' tomb, he says, it is empty and he's conquered the grave. It was Jesus himself who was not able to be overcome by death because death could not handle him. And because of this victory over death, David and all of us can courageously face life with a peace, a peace that passes all understanding. And we get to live in the meantime with our eyes focused on who God is. We get to anticipate what it's going to be like to enjoy him forever, and we get small little tastes of that here on earth. Let me put it how Charles Spurgeon said it. Jesus' resurrection is the cause. It's the guarantee. It's the down payment. It is the emblem and the flag of the rising of God's people. Let God's people be able to go to their graves like they would go to their beds. Let them rest their bodies among the lumps of dirt as they rest their bodies on their own couches. Knowing peace comes when we can compare the sufferings of this life to the pleasures that last forever with God. I want to close tonight with just some challenges. And I'm going to call these challenging applications. Just in the last minute or so, what are some applications of our study tonight? And these are challenging. When I say challenging, I should say they're humanly impossible. It takes God's Holy Spirit to do this within us tonight. We have to depend upon him. 
So what are some challenges tonight that we need to remember this week before we go? The first one is this. We need to learn to see God as our highest good. We need to learn to see God as our highest good. One writer said that there are great blessings when we trust in Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. But the greatest blessings, he says, rest with those who hold that God is their highest good. We have to, just like David did at the very beginning, surrender ourselves to God and say, God, you are the source of my goodness. Everything good that I have in life comes immediately from you. And I believe, just like we talked about this morning, our view of God and who he is will affect our worship and our living perhaps more than anything else. See God as your highest good. Secondly, we got to love God with all of our heart. This is a familiar commandment. Jesus himself said it was the greatest commandment. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Matthew Henry said that when it comes to living in relationship with God, it takes a work of the heart. All that is within us must be employed, and all that is within us needs to be engaged. So in other words, all of who we are needs to be captured by God, captured for God and put into his service. And as we said, Jesus said that is the greatest commandment, and God commands it of us. Lastly, the final challenge tonight is we get to anticipate what eternity is going to be looking like by getting our worship on right now. Anticipate eternity by worshiping now. When we can compare this life, as fragile as it is, as filled with suffering as it is, it gets our hearts ready to be with the Lord. Just like David says, we can have supreme confidence and peace knowing that God has conquered death and he will raise us up one day. We will get to enjoy being in God's presence forever and that should get our hearts ready to be with him. Let me close with one last quote. This is from Jonathan Edwards one more time. He summarized how we get enjoyment in God. God is, he says, the greatest good of the reasonable creature. And enjoying God is the only happiness that can satisfy our souls. To go to heaven and be with God, to fully enjoy God, is better, he says, than anything, any accommodation here. Fathers, mothers, Husbands, wives, even our children, even our best friends, he says they're all shadows, but our God is the substance. They're all scattered beams, but God is the true sun. They're streams, but God is the true fountain. They're but drops in God's mighty, mighty ocean. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would begin to dismiss us now in your care. As we begin to close the service tonight and sing just a song of worship, I just ask that you would continue to get our hearts ready for what eternity is going to be like. You offer us true life, true living. It's a life that comes in obedience to you. It comes as a life that knows who you are and knows what you've done for us on the cross in your son. As David says, in your presence, as we get to seek you in daily life, as we get to seek your face, where we can come to you unashamed like we would come to a father. David says there is fullness of joy, joy in abundance, joy that lasts through any situation in life. You offer this to us freely because of your love. And so I ask that as we get ready to leave here tonight, that we would remember who you are, that we would see you as our highest good, that we would respond out of love, and that would affect our worship as we look forward to being with you forever. Bless us now, Lord, as we sing praises to you. 
And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.